Chapter Thirteen of North Pole Voyages by Zaharia A. Mudge. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen: The Hut. We now made for Cape Perry with all speed, though this was slow speed. The young ice which covered the bay was too old for us, or at any rate, it was too strong for easy progress. It was sunset when we reached the Cape. Beyond this there had been open water seen by us for many days past, from the elevated points of observation which we had sought. From this point, therefore, we expected free sailing southward, and rapid progress towards safety and our homes. But here we were at last at Cape Perry against a pack which extended far southward. In our desperation we tried to force the boats through. The iron sides was badly battered, and the hope made sadly leaky by the operation, and no progress was made. We then pushed slowly down the shore through a lead, and having gone about seven miles, darkness and the ice brought us to a stand, and we drew up for the night. In the morning we observed a lead going south from the shore at a point twelve miles distant. For six days, bringing us to the 27th of September, we fought hard to reach the lead, but failed. We could now neither retreat nor go forward. Ice and snow were everywhere. The sun was running low in the heavens, seeming to rise only to set, and soon the night, which was to have no sunrise morning until February, would be upon us. Our food was sufficient for not more than two weeks, and our fuel of blubber for the lamp only was but enough for eight or ten days. Our condition seemed almost without hope, but it had entered into our calculations as a possible contingency, and we girded ourselves for the struggle for life, trusting in the great deliverer. We were about sixteen miles below Cape Perry, and about midway between Whale Sound and Wolstenholm Sound. We pitched our tent thirty yards from the sea, on a rocky upland. After securing in a safe place the boats and equipments, we began to look about us for a place to build a hut. It was, indeed, a dreary, death-threatening region. Time was too pressing for us to think of building an Eskimo hut, if, indeed, our strength and skill was sufficient. While we were looking round and debating what to build and where, one of our party found a crevice in a rock. This crevice ran parallel with the coast, and was opposite to and near the landing. It was eight feet in width, and level on the bottom. The rock on the east side was six feet high, its face smooth and perpendicular, except breaks in two places, making at each a shelf. On the other, the ocean side, the wall was scarcely four feet high, round and sloping, but a cleft through it made an opening to the crevice from the west. We at once determined to make our hut here, as the natural walls would save much work in its construction. The only material to be sought of was rocks. These we had to find beneath the snow, and then loosen them from the grasp of the frost. For this we fortunately had an ice chisel, a bar of iron, an inch in diameter and four feet long, bent at one end for a handle, and tempered and sharpened at the other. With this, Bonsal loosened the rocks, 
and others bore them on their shoulders to the crevice. When a goodly pile was made, we began to construct the walls. Instead of mortar, we had sand to fill in between the stones. This was as hard to obtain as the stones themselves, as it had to be first picked to pieces with the ice chisel, then scooped up with our tin dinner plates into cast-off bread bags, and thus borne to the builders. This work was done by four of us only, the other four being engaged in hunting, to keep away threatened starvation. In two days our walls were up. They ran across the crevice, that is, east and west, were fourteen feet apart, four feet high, and three thick. The natural walls being eight feet apart, our hut was thus in measurement, fourteen feet by eight. The entrance was through the cleft, from the ocean side. We laid across the top of this doorway the rudder of the hope, and erected on it the gable. One of the boat's masts was used for a ridge-pole, and the oars for rafters. Over these we laid the boat's sails, drew them tightly, and secured them with heavy stones. Being sadly deficient in lumber, Peterson constructed a door of light framework and covered it with canvas. He hung it on an angle, so that when opened it shut of its own weight. A place was left for a window over the doorway, across which we drew a piece of old muslin, well greased with blubber, and through which the sombre light streamed when there was any outside. We then endeavoured to thatch the roof and batten the cracks everywhere with moss. But to obtain this article we had to scour the country far and near, dig through the deep snow, having tin dinner, plates for shovels, wrench it from the grip of the frost with our ice chisel, put it in our bread bags, and back it home. In four days, in spite of all obstacles, our hut assumed a homelike appearance, at least homelike compared with our present quarters. We said, Tomorrow we shall move into it and be comparatively comfortable. But that day brought the advance force of a terrific storm of wind and snow. It caught some of us three miles from the tent. We huddled together in our thin hem canvas tent and slept as best we could. Two of our company crawled out in the morning to prepare our scanty meal. They found the hut half full of snow, which had sifted through the crevices. But they brought to the tent's company a hot breakfast after some hours' toil. We ate, and our spirits revived. We tried all possible expedients to pass away the time, but the hours moved slowly. The storm continued to howl and roar about us, with unceasing fury, for four days. Our little stock of food was diminishing, our hut was unfinished, and winter was upon us in earnest. Our situation was one of almost unmitigated misery. On Friday, October 6, the storm subsided, and nature put on a smiling face. We renewed our work at the hut, clearing it of snow with our dinner-plate shovels, and then, under greater difficulties than ever, because the snow was deeper and our strength less, we finished it. The internal arrangements were as follows. An aisle or floor, three feet wide, extended from the door across the hut. 
On the right, as one entered, was a raised platform of stone and sand about eighteen inches high. On this we spread our skins and blankets. Here five of us were to sleep. On the back corner of the other side was a similar platform, or breck, as the Eskimo would call it. Here three men were to sleep. In the left-hand corner near the door, Peterson had extemporized a stove out of some tin sheathing torn from the hope, with a funnel of the same material running out of the roof. This sort of fireplace stove held two lamps, a saucepan and kettle. On a post which supported the roof hung a small lamp. Into this hut we moved October ninth. Compared with the tent, it was comfortable. It was evening when we were settled. At sundown, Peterson came in with eight sea fowl. So we celebrated the occasion with a stew of fresh game, cooked in our stove with the staves of our blubber kegs, and we added to our meal a pot of hot coffee. The supper done, we talked by the dim light of our moss taper. A storm, which was heralded during the day, was raging without in full force, burying us in a huge snowbank. We discussed calmly our duties and trials, and we all lay down prayerfully to sleep. What shall we do now? was the question of the morning. Indeed, it was the continual question. John reported our stores thus. There's three quarters of a small barrel of bread, a capful of meat biscuit, half as much rice and flour, a double handful of lard, and that's all. Our vigilant hunting thus far had resulted in seventeen small birds. That was all. Some of us had tried to eat the stone moss, a miserable lichen which clung tenaciously to the stones beneath the snow. But it did little more than stop for a while the gnawings of hunger, often inducing serious illness. Yet this seemed our only resort. The storm still raged. We were all reclining upon the bracks except John, who was trying to cook by a fire which filled our hut with smoke, when we were startled by a strange sound. What is it? we asked. We could not get out, so we listened at the window. It was the wind, we said, for we could hear nothing more. In a half hour it was repeated clearer and louder. We opened the door by drawing the snow into the house, and made a little opening through the drift so we could see daylight. It was the barking of a fox, says one. No, said another, it was the growling of a bear. Whipple, who was half asleep, muttered, it was just nothing at all. While these remarks were being made, the Eskimo shout was clearly recognized. Peterson put his mouth to the aperture in the snow and shouted, Huck, huck, huck! After much shouting, two bewildered Eskimo entered our hut. They were from Netlik, the village we had last left, and one was Kalutuna. Their fur dress had a thick covering of snow, and hardy though they were, they looked weary almost to faintness. They each held in one hand a dog whip, and in the other a piece of meat and blubber. They threw down the food, thrust their whipstocks under the rafters, hung their wet outer furs upon them, and at once made themselves at home. The chief hung around Dr. Hayes, saying fondly, Docty, Docty. 
John put out his smoking fire at the angecock's request and used his blubber in cooking a good joint of the bear meat. We all had a good meal at our guest's expense. Necessity was more than courtesy with hungry men. While the cooking and eating were going on, we listened to the marvelous story of the Eskimo. They left Netlik, forty miles north, the morning of the previous day on a hunting excursion with two dog sledges. The storm overtook them far out upon the ice in search of bear, and they sheltered themselves in a snow hut for the night. Fearing the ice might break up, they turned to the land, which they happened to strike near our boats and tent. Knowing we must be near, they picketed their dogs under a sheltering rock and commenced tramping and shouting. The supper eaten, the story told, and the curiosity of our visitors satisfied, in closely observing everything, we made for them the best bed possible, tucked them in, and they were soon snoring lustily. In the morning we tunneled a hole from our door through the snow. Kalutuna and Dr. Hayes went to the seashore. The dogs were howling piteously, having been exposed to all the fury of the storm during the night without the liberty of stirring beyond their tethers. Besides, they had been forty-eight hours without food, having come from home, in that time, through a widely deviating track. Everything about them was carefully secured which could be eaten, and they were loosened. Dr. Hayes turned toward the hut, and having reached the snow tunnel, he was about to stoop down to crawl through it, when he observed the whole pack of thirteen snapping savage brutes at his heels. Had he been on his knees, they would have made at once a meal of him. They stood at bay for a moment, but seeing he had no means of attack, one of them commenced the assault by springing upon him. Dr. Hayes caught him on his arm and kicked him down the hill. This caused a momentary pause. No help was near, and to run was sure death. It was a fearful moment, and his blood chilled at the prospect of dying by the jaws of wolfish dogs, whose fierce and flashing eyes assured him that hunger had given them a terrible earnestness. His eye improved the moment's respite in sweeping the circle of the enemy for the means of escape, and he caught a glimpse of a dog-whip about ten feet off. Instantly he sprang, as only a man thus situated could spring, and clearing the back of the largest of the dogs, seized the whip. He was now master of the situation. Never amiable, and terribly savage when prompted by hunger, yet the Eskimo dog is always a coward. Dr. Hayes' vigorous blows, laid on at right and left with much effect and more sound and fury, sent the pack yelping away. In our discussions of the question of subsistence, we had about decided that we must draw our supplies from the Eskimo or perish. Our hunting was a failure, and our supply of food was about exhausted. So when Kalutuna came back, we proposed to him, through Peterson, to purchase blubber and bear meat with our treasures of needles, knives, etc., so valuable in the eyes of the natives. He looked at our sunken cheeks, and desolate home with a knowing twinkle of his eye, and a crafty expression on his besotted face. This was followed by the questions. How much shoot with mighty guns? How much food you bring from ship? 
these questions and the speaking eye and tell-tale face were windows through which we saw into the workings of his dark heathen mind they meant as we understood them if you are going to starve we had better let you we shall then get your nice things without paying for them but peterson understood and outmanaged the crafty chief how are we going to live he boldly exclaimed facing the questioner live shoot bear when we get hungry sleep when we get tired eskimo will bring us bear we shall give them presents and sleep all the time white man easily get plenty to eat always plenty to eat plenty sleep the glory of life from the eskimo point of view is plenty to eat and nothing to do they held those who had attained to this high estate in profound respect the starving could scarcely be brought within the range of their consideration hence the policy adopted by peterson and it had its desired effect kalutuna and his companion tarried another night and departed promising to return with such food as the hunt afforded and exchange it for our valuables two weeks days of misery passed before their return we set fox traps constructed much after the style of the rabbit traps of the boys at home tramping for this purpose over the coastline for ten miles one little prisoner only rewarded our pains while the saucy villains showed themselves boldly by day barking at us from the top of a rock dodging across our path at the right and left and even following us within sight of the hut but all this was done at a safe distance from our guns peterson went far out to sea on the ice but neither bear nor seal rewarded his toil we had burned up our lard keg from our semi-daily fire to cook our scanty meals and now with a sorrow that went to our hearts began to break up the hope we knew this step argued badly for the future but what could we do besides it was poor water-soaked fuel and would last but a little while we saved the straightest and best pieces for trade with the eskimo our scanty meals badly helped by the stone moss told upon our health stephenson gasped for breath with a heart trouble godfrey fainted and was happily saved a serious fall by being caught in john's arms End of chapter thirteen